listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the Pain Pod. You want to see pain? Look at these. Welcome to the Pain Pod, the podcast for all things pain management. Hosted by the pain guy, Dr. Mark Grofoli. We'll be collaborating with numerous pain management experts, talking about substance usage disorders, the latest treatment modalities, and most important, important. focusing on the pain of our patients as leading providers of pain care. And now, here's our host, a man wanted in all 50 states, a suburban city-like mountain man, without the beard, from the hills of West Virginia, and certified in weapons of mass destruction response, it's Dr. Mark Garofoli. All right, welcome back everyone to the pain pod. You know where you were coming, right? I doubt you downloaded this by accident or are listening by accident either, but welcome back to the pain pod. As many times in the past, uh, yours truly here, Mark Payne Guy I am pretty darn excited about today's episode. Uh, anytime it's uh, more than this guy on the mic, hey, that uh, we all want to listen more, right? Present self included. All right, so what do we hear in this episode to talk about? Uh, some might say a little jerry duty. Not jury duty, although I believe that's a series on Amazon these days. But anyways, uh, the jerry duty that we're going to be here to talk about is taking care of our elderly patients. Now, terms like that, I think we probably want to put some numbers to, right? Like, uh, who who is he to say who's elderly or a geriatric patient or this or that? Uh, well, we're primarily talking about, uh, as all the references agree, I guess, those 65 years of age and older, uh, more experience, right? Uh, let's hit the reality, though. If you're listening, you're either 65 and older, or you're aiming to be. I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that we would all love to be geriatric someday and beyond, right? Uh, anybody out there also thinking about being a centurion? And I'm not talking about those Roman soldiers from centuries ago. I'm talking about just the term a centurion for those who live to 100. Well, to get us all to 100, we got extra work to do from 65 to 100, right? And quite frankly, here and today as well. So one of the big things we'll be discussing here today in the background uh, is the recently updated, the 2023 AGS or American Geriatric Society Beers Criteria Update. Uh, conversationally known sometimes as the beers list, uh, certainly more than a six pack, right? Uh, but you know, uh, enough of the uh, big topics here. Let's crack one open, eh? All right. So I uh, certainly want to welcome our guest here on the Pain Pod today. Uh, we, you know, we, we've we've got a heavy hitter within the the realm of expertise, folks. Uh, we've got Dr. Delon Canterbury uh, from Geriatrics. And I really want to welcome him uh, to the mic here. Uh, you know, if, if for those of you that aren't familiar um, with Delon uh, or geriatrics, uh, I just wanted to welcome you uh, here to the pain pod and, you know, give us a little bit of insight. Uh, you know, what what's your story? 
Yes, I'm excited to be here, Mark, and I appreciate you having me, of course. Love the work you're doing. Uh, but yeah, Geriatrics, we started this company in 2020 um, after working as a community pharmacist and seeing a lot of the older adults who just need a bit more support when it comes to mid-management. And so I would just keep seeing countless errors, duplicate therapies, drug interactions, prescribing cascades, <clears throat> and felt we didn't, well, I felt I wasn't able to fully advocate as much as I would have loved to in that setting. So I decided to get really into what the community needed, which was volunteering, doing brown bags with a nonprofit uh, called Senior Pharmacist, and just getting a bit more involved with that process of figuring out those insurance plans for older adults, and while doing, you know, med management, de-prescribing type of interventions uh, through that company. And that really spearheaded the model behind geriatrics in why not provide a concierge pharmacist approach to objective medication information, education around their health conditions and needs, and then most importantly, be that voice and advocate as a part of that person's care team. So that's the focus of geriatrics and, and why I decided to use my voice to advocate for our older adults. And boy, is your voice making a difference in uh, communities, man. Um, well done overall. It's, a, it's, you know, the old carpe diem story. You see something, you've got expertise in it. Uh, and and go for it. Be able to help people. Uh, and you know we we um, I, from what I'm I'm told here, uh, we we actually uh, share a partial common background. You no, know, we're all different, of course, but uh, I believe that would be with community pharmacy leadership. Um, yeah. So you know, like taking that step back, what are some of the sure. biggest lessons you learned uh, with uh, retail pharmacy supervising? Oh, yeah, for sure. So I, I was a pharmacy manager uh, with Walgreens uh, right pretty much a couple of months after I graduated in 2014. So uh, I basically become one in 2015 and learned quite a bit about the operations piece, the, the how to manage the team, I would say, was my biggest takeaway. So it was great deep dive into your personality and how to manage people to achieve goals together, even with, you know, different attitudes, different care, different levels of engagement. Uh, but it, it got me the behind the scenes of what a business uh, does and how it operates. How does it run on the corporate level? So, you know, you learn about why we do certain things we do operationally, learn about those key metrics but I would say my biggest takeaway, at least, was understanding people and understanding how to communicate effectively with people. You know, we as pharmacists have a gift to dissect really complex info and make it really easy to follow. Um, that still applies when you're a manager and it still applies to driving that team engagement, those metrics to motivating people and really to let your personality shine. So. I wouldn't say it was all sunshine and rainbows. I didn't have like the blast, you know, in that setting, but I took away a lot on uh, team dynamics, uh, management and, and planning. Love it. Hey, a rainbow is going to look a lot better when it's directly after a storm, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the definition, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Um, the, um, the, the people side, that, that's a big one. I, I mean, you know, we're all here on this planet to help each other. So, 
Uh, you know, I think of the different things, even from my own professional past of, um, you know, you mentioned working, uh, collaborating with Walgreens. Um, I had worked with mm -hmm. uh, CVS and just the different things that are beyond pharmacy even. I always talk with our, our student pharmacists and various learners of, uh, you know, different studies that would be done. I remember there was a study of, you know, when you're walking into a building, uh, where are the human eyeballs going? So, you know, if you want to put information up about having a, an event to talk about, you know, how to help patients, where would you put the flyer? Uh, they, they had this uh, at the time. This is, you know, decades ago, quite frankly. Uh, you put contacts in the eyeballs and see where the eyeballs look. And the number one place our eyeballs go is garbage cans. We always got our trash to get rid of when we're getting out of the car, whether you got a kid or not. Um, so, it, you know, it's totally off the wall. But you know what? It really can help clinical care in the long run when you incorporate the big picture. So, all right. Now, you had talked about, um, you know, transitioning over to geriatrics and, and you know, just helping mm -hmm. older, older patients in the big picture there. So, you know, uh, what's the keystone of it all? How, how do you begin your de-prescribing patient chats? Mm, love it. Love it. Um, and yeah, I'm going to dive right into that. But another piece of why I created geriatrics came from a personal story in my family. So, it, and this is actually in relevance to your, your question. And my grandmother actually had mild dementia and was inadvertently prescribed an antipsychotic, I think it was Zeprazidone, uh, while she was in that facility. And we essentially just saw her declining severely. I mean, wandering, irritable, uh, combative, so much so that the facility ended up removing her. And my parents had to move her from New York, where I was born, uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, where I grew up. So needless to say, for four months, my parents were dealing with child-proofing the home, you know, locking the doors and uh, dealing with her, you know, essentially her care, and it burned them the hell out. So we ended up, upon a refill, having the support and advocacy of a local Rite Aid pharmacist. So yeah, shout out to that pharmacist who looked at my grandmother's medications. Her name was Mildred. And found that that Zeprazidone may have been contributing to her worsened cognition and delirium. And, and so to your point, it ended up leading to her having a conversation with the initial prescriber. They created a tapering plan for my grandmother. And within two to three weeks, she resolved to her kind of mild dementia self. So I, I bring that up because that level of advocacy and education to act on it. Whereas there were times, Mark, when I was in that setting, I may not have caught that, right? I may have right, just right. refilled it as business as usual. And in our world as pharmacists, or at least managers, you get a bonus the more scripts you fill. Um, not that that would skew my you know, ethical compass, but unfortunately, it just wasn't always practical in that setting. So I cannot thank that person enough for changing the trajectory of my grandmother who lived to see 90 after that. And it's, it's really what drives the level of advocacy I bring when it comes to my clients. So first and foremost, Mark, to answering, you know, how I bring up these conversations, I, I like to lead with, you know, what are the person's goals? Like what matters most to the caregiver or patient? Right. So I like to use the four M's model, which is an age friendly mnemonic 
to kind of guide my de-prescribing conversation. So in the 4Ms model, we're looking at what matters most to the patient, right? Uh, mm-hmm. How do we preserve mobility? Uh, what are the medications doing? And then how do we preserve mindset? Is there anything that may be impeding cognition or can we talk about social engagement? So I really get to the nitty gritty of what do you want to do? These are your best years of your life. Let's reframe this aging to be fun, sexy, whatever you want it to be. But let's make it personal. So do you want to go up walking more with your grandbabies? Do you want to, you know, go travel to your hometown and, and see old family? Or is it, you know, whatever the case is, I try to attach the deep prescribing conversation to what they want most out of life. And sometimes it's time with family. Usually it's time with family. Um, <laughs> but when we broach this topic, I'm starting with, you know, has this medication outlasted the benefits it may have once had when you're 80, 75 now? And are you first interested in getting off medications, Mark? Not everyone wants to get off, right? right so that's right. the first topic. So we're you're so accustomed in our culture, and it's not really anyone's fault, but we want something now and fast and quick. So we we take a pill. Whereas if you're taking it for 20, 30 years, it's a part of your life, right? It's a psychological right. attachment. So a little bit's going to be sprinkling the seed of, hey, have you ever considered that you may not need this anymore? Or how would you feel if you took, you know, five less meds than you normally do? Um, some people, I leave it to their power to choose where they want to go. So That's you kind of awesome. want to assess that buy-in and trust. Yeah, it, it's taking it to the person. It sounds like you're not... Uh... You know, being the uh, the pharmacist that's just looking at the medication list and taking action before even opening a mouth. So it's you know taking it to the person. That, that's yeah. Um, man, if we all treat every patient like our own grandparents, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I still remember uh, you know where there's a lot of assessments, exams, and everything within pharmacy schools across our country. But you know, I used to gauge myself throughout the you know P one, two, three, four year. I'd come home. I'd go to my grandma's house. She would have her her bucket of uh, pill bottles. And if I was able to go through everything and at least know what was going on, I was getting somewhere. But then what about, hey, are there any opportunities? That's, of course, maybe a little bit later in P3, P4. But um, yeah, same idea of taking it home, making it personal there. So uh, now, um, whether it's me, whether it's other pharmacists, uh, you know, got some opportunities with you. Uh, turns out you also spearhead the deprescribing accelerator program. So yeah, tell us a little bit about that. This is where, you know, folks listening, this is where you can get active and, and more uh, experience and training in this regard. Yeah, for sure, Mark. So I I essentially created a deep prescribing accelerator modeling um, concierge practice to deep prescribing. And it's a hybrid of the clinical piece of, of course, deep prescribing, knowing what tools are readily available. But the magic sauce is how do we monetize that? How do we make that a business model? And so in this program, it's a 12-week training program where you're getting my intel on who I've made, you know, partnerships with, how I've been able to package my services. But more importantly, it's giving you all the secrets without having to go through that rigorous, you know, and I love them to death, board certified geriatric credential. So I feel it's really giving you the essentials to have those deep prescribing conversations. And so I target the class to, yes, our geriatric pharmacists, but 
uh, geriatric nurses, social workers, and even prescribers can all take this course and get 15 hours of live CE as a part of their training. And the reason being is, uh, you know, we got to talk about what's happening in the future. We have an aging landscape. We have less geriatricians. We have less care providers, particularly in these facilities. And so there's going to be a demand for people to seriously leverage de-prescribing for just not businesses that are not necessarily the health system as a whole, but within these businesses that are seeing these patients, like these adult daycare centers, these senior homes, these independent living facilities, uh, these physical therapists, occupational therapists. I mean, there's an entire landscape where pharmacists can integrate, where people already have the clients and you just come with your brilliant expertise and start having these deep prescribing convos. You see, I'm not just, hey, here's a med list, let's knock this out, like you say. It, it really starts with education from the caregiver, the patient, there needs to be a psychological trust with the messengers, so there needs to be a relationship. The patients who work with me, they're seeing me for months. They're not just seeing me for one time and we're done. So I don't, it's hard to just have a convo if you don't have someone who really cares and treats you like a family to have that, that kind of buy-in. But I see that there is a landscape of just having an army of deep prescribing advocates who graduate from our program, who can use this for you know, public speaking engagements, for continuing workshops, for one-on-one -on -one package services. I mean, for just training others. I mean, there's just so many levels to deep prescribing, I feel pharmacists may not know. And I think we have to get out of our minds of just thinking, oh, it can only be done in tandem, you know, in an office. Like you can have these convos today in your church, in your schools, you name it. And that's the power that I want people to see from this is, yeah, yeah, we're having convos, but it's, again, specifically focused to having our older adults age uh, with a better quality of life and without any potential harms that we have left behind with medications. Lots of opportunities there for uh, everyone to be, you know, making this more than one-off one interactions, making this a life, a lifestyle of helping others, of course, too. So, all right, uh, Pain Pod Nation, sounds like Delon knows what he's talking about, right? <laughs> all right, so uh, good, sir. Keep the convo going. Tell, tell you know, one of the integral parts that's you know observed a lot uh, with our older patients uh, is polypharmacy. So, uh, here, sixty seconds. What, what do we need to know about polypharmacy? Go. Yeah, so polypharmacy, technically defined as uh, the use of five or more medications. Um, it could be for a number of reasons, but generally that's the sweet number where we find the larger your med list grows, the more increased risk of mortality, morbidity, falls, cognitive impairment, and of course, drug interactions. And not all polypharmacy is considered bad. Uh, you could be on five meds or more, and those say six are, are all appropriate uh, for that patient's well-being, and that's okay. Uh, but there are issues and data that shows that things, if you have like more than 10 or hyper polypharmacy, as that's defined, can lead to some of those harms that we've discussed. So the magic is how do we integrate more of us, the pharmacist experts, to motivate teams to drive a culture shift around avoiding contributing to polypharmacy, which the World Health Organization defines as the number three public health crisis in the world to so humanity is medication side effects and harm. So that's on a nutshell what we're trying to avoid. So my goal is to make sure our older adults are tackling that less than five number 
um, to make sure that we were reducing that risk. A very objective way of going about it with compassion along the way. Good golly. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, information out there. It's like a shotgun approach, pun completely atten- intended here. Uh, but mm-hmm. here, let, let's take a second. Time for a beer. Or at least a guideline named after one, right? Uh, so back in the day, 1991, I believe, uh, Dr. Mark Beers, that's a different Mark, um, it, it mm-hmm. started up, uh, you know, the first efforts there with the Beers criteria or Beers list. So, uh, you know, after a good number of months, years, decades uh, later, we we of course have the 2023 update to the AGS Beers criteria. Uh, that was published uh, back in uh, May of 2023. Uh, so just gonna I, I'm gonna skim the top layer, just a skim of you know what's involved in there. Perhaps a future conversation on the pain pot will be going a little bit deeper for us, of course. Uh, so Dewan, you can take a breather for a second. But the 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 beers list or beers criteria is organized into tables. It is certainly a guideline. It's a publication, but the, it's really heavy on the tables. Okay, there's ten of them. Uh, the first one is really just going over quality of evidence, strength of recommendations. Not really the clinical information, just how to read and utilize the clinical information. The last three, eight, nine, and ten, talk about changes since the last guideline. So that leaves us with tables two through seven. Okay, uh, table two, the second one, that's potentially inappropriate medications for use in older adults. Well, let's just call them PIMS, because literally that's what everybody does. Okay, that table, ooh, it's it's such an underestimate uh, to call it a table. Even in the guideline itself, uh, the publication, it, it's many pages. That is the list of all the potentially inappropriate things you typically want to consider avoiding uh, for our older patients. But again, this is a guideline. It doesn't mean that if it's on the list, never, ever, ever, ever utilize. We're dealing with humans. We're all different, right? All right. So table two is a lengthy one. Uh, then uh, table three, that portion is talking about you know patients with various uh, disease states or syndromes. In that case, you know, are there other medications that might make that disease or syndrome worse? So other things to consider avoiding as well. Table. The fourth table, uh, that's drugs to be used with caution in older adults. So it's not saying avoid, just eh, kind of watch things, you know, monitor along the way like we should anyway. The fifth table is all about drug-drug interactions that uh, when, you know, the, the authors were scouring through all of the, the publications, you know, literally thousands, uh, those drug-drug interactions that really came to the, the, the top uh, for what to be avoided for our older adults. And then uh, the sixth table is talking about medications to have uh, to either avoid or reduce their dosage based on uh, declining kidney function, which, you know, of course, gets us all in the end, right? Uh, And the seventh uh, last real clinical-ish table is uh, medications with strong anticholinergic properties, which truth be told, those medications are already incorporated into the previous tables, those parts of the guideline overall. Uh, That's just kind of putting them on their own island there overall. All right, if there was possibilities of uh, running down that update, that recommendation list, the guideline in two minutes or less, I think we just did it. Uh, but, you know, we got an expert here today. So, Dolan, tapping back in here, what do you believe are the most impactful sections or information here within this overall uh, guideline? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, absolutely. Table two is kind of the bread and butter of the beers list. 
But I really love how they summarize um, the health condition or disease uh, as an interaction or contraindication with certain medications. I think it really makes it clear. So if you're really savvy with hitting control F, you can really do a quick dive on what meds may or may not be appropriate. And they do a good job of updating some of the newer meds in the literature, like uh, SGLT2s for diabetes, um, and even adding something which we don't really see that often, like the dextromethorphan and quinidine uh, in heart failure. Um, but I would say if you're not familiar, do a, do a deep dive on table two. It's all relevant. Uh, and so they really do a good job of adding some of those clinical nuances. You know, like you said, the beers list isn't meant to just be a big no-no list. Uh, but one that stood out to me, which I like to jump on, is they recently updated it to reflect their aspirin uh, recommendation. And so before, uh, it was kind of a use as caution measure. Now it's been moved to pretty much avoid for the primary prevention um, of any uh, cardiovascular events. So, you know, if you see that, and they have the uh, caveat of saying, if people are already taking that only for primary prevention, that you can consider uh, deprescribing that. So that's in accordance with the recent US, you know, PSTS task force uh, and their recommendations on essentially not seeing any evidence for keeping aspirin on board. But, you know, there's there's tons of good stuff. I, I think they really emphasize even more clearly the need to do an assessment for anticholinergic uh, burden scales. You know, um, we got to make sure if you're not familiar, use that calculator, ACB Calc. That's a tool we highly discuss in our deprescribing accelerator. But again, we're looking at the compounded impact of anticholinergic burden. And so we, we particularly see a lot of patients with the dementia, mixed dementias, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and we have to readily use that tool to see what their anticholinergic burden scale is. So table two has a good good summary of that. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they as always do a great job. Uh, Todd Semla and Mike Steinman uh, are some of the experts who were on the review board for this under the American Geriatrics society. So just, you know, I tell people to always just be mindful of the setting of the person, you know, this is meant for a compendium for community dwelling and generally people over 65, but it does not apply uh, to people that are in a hospice or end of life setting. So just want to make sure I make that clear. They also added another update uh, to warfarin, which we know has been an oldie, but I guess kind of goodie. <laughs> but they have shown that with the addition of the newer uh, DOAX out there, you know, the Xereltos and whatnot, uh, they have actually moved warfarin now to the to the avoid column, essentially avoiding as a new start. Right? Um, it's really unclear if there's a seen benefit if someone's already chronically on warfarin and they switch to a DOAX. But at least for those that we're seeing as a new start, we just find that. There's just a significantly reduced bleed risk when using those DOACs. Um, there's, of course, no INR monitoring that has to be dealt with it. Um, and in my world, where I also like to use pharmacogenomics, you know, I, I want to know what the CYP2D6 and the VKORC1 enzymes and receptors are doing in case there may lead to more variability in response. So uh, that's always important for me because I use pharmacogenomics as a tool for my deep prescribing efforts, which we also cover as a part of our deep prescribing accelerator. Uh, but they also add another one. Um, they kind of go on the fact that 
some of those estrogens used um, uh, like hormone replacement therapy for people postmenopausal to avoid that as well. So I think it was more of a, I think it was previously an, an, as a caution, but now it's uh, definitive in that we don't want people starting estrogen uh, to manage that. Unless of course it's like vaginal atrophy as a use, uh, that is okay for estrogen, but they've also uh, moved that up to the avoid column as well. So tons of tons of tons of goodies. They even do a good job of giving you like uh, drug interactions to look out for, like gabapentinoids and opioids. Um, what else? Um, of course, aspirin, NSAIDs, et cetera, SSRIs and ibuprofen. Um, of course, the traditional benzos and opioids all we want to avoid. So I think it's pretty, pretty comprehensive. Um, so I definitely recommend when people use this, get comfortable hitting control F and looking up the drug list uh, individually, and then check out those case scenarios they have too, you know, especially when it comes to antipsychotics, which I tend to see quite overused in the older population. Uh, they specifically say to avoid unless there's a, a true bipolar or schizophrenic uh, health condition, which is also debatable, but again, they're they do a damn good job of being comprehensive here for de-prescribing conversations. Absolutely. And, it, and it's, you know, it, there's a lot of granular information along the way. And, and I really appreciate you pointing out some of those highlights there. You know, big picture, it's like even the drug-drug interactions, you know, when you're talking a lot of CNS active medications, like you mentioned, you know, it all comes back to that big picture of, uh, you know, improving cognition, preventing falls, fractures, you know, the anticholinergic burdens, the, those types of medications. I mean, you know, slow it down, dry it up, and I eh, got to watch for falls, of course. It, it's, you know, what could get a lot of people. Uh, even uh, I, my, my own house, uh, we were in, uh, got stairs and steps put all around the place because in decades from now, I want to be able to walk around and not break my hip, end mm -hmm. up in the hospital infection, and then we're having a funeral. We got to avoid that stuff. Uh, so yeah. really, uh, you know, good big picture looking at some of the specifics there. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, Dylan, it turns out we're both uh, BCGPs, uh, board certified geriatric pharmacists. Kind of makes it sound like we're both over 65, though. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, of note, uh, when BPS had a public comment period for the development of the BCGP, when it was, you know, coming from uh, just the general credentialing, uh, I begged them to consider adding the word care in there. I was like, you know, board certified geriatric care pharmacist, perhaps, but eh, whatever, tomato, tomato. Mm -hmm. um, you know, today, these days, I know BPS is diligently working towards, um, you know, reflecting upon the public comment periods and, you know, bringing up the board certification for pain management as well. So we all have to sit tight for that, of course. Uh, that'll, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, there's ups and downs with board certs. It's, you know, passing a test, keeping up the CEs. There's a lot of uh, the financial aspect for pharmacists along the way with that. Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully jobs will open up too whenever there's a certification, you know, leading to uh, exemplifying that expertise. Uh, a lot of folks are already in alphabet soup, though. So, you know, it, it's all about putting ourselves out there, having, you know, the the care level, putting putting the pen to the paper, the PowerPoint to the patient. So, all right. Anyway, so since you're a BCGP, uh, when it comes to providing patient care to our uh, older patients in pain, uh, what do you believe are the most important pharmacological aspects that we got to keep in mind as clinicians? Oh, I think you know. Uh, a lot of it is not <laughs> pharmacological, right? What are we doing Trick without question. using the meds? 
Um, so that's generally my approach. I know, right? Mark, you got me. Uh, try to. Um, and Mark is my middle name. So it's kind of funny that it works out this way. And Mark's the beers list guy. But man, I'm all about non-farm. And so yep. I, I like to assess uh, what type of pain are we dealing with? Uh, well, you know, I, I do pain severity scales. And I try to describe the pain. Like, is it numbing, burning, tingling, kind of basic triaging? And then once I get into that, we got to talk about the usual, what has helped, what hasn't helped, uh, what makes you feel better, and how can we double down on what makes you feel better if it's, you know, if it's helping. And so I, I like to approach pain a number of ways, right? Pain is biopsychosocial, right? There's a biological harm or, or, or injury. There's a psychological burden that comes with it. And there's a sociological or social aspect of it. And so in, in, in tandem with those three, you have to treat pain those three ways, right? Are we exhausting, Absolutely. you know, pain specialists? Are we talking about, uh, you know, behavioral therapy to, to manage or redirect pain when it comes up for people, especially in chronic pain, uh, more than three months? So what are we doing to exhaust a therapist or a psychological component, right? Uh, socially, you know, I, I find when people are engaging with their friends or doing things with family, they may forget that their knee was hurting if they were just sitting down all day and, and aware of it. So how are we prescribing social engagement? You know, what are we doing to get the body moving? What are we doing uh, in our nutrition? Like, you know, I try to see and treat people holistically and then biologically, right? Uh, there is a feedback mechanism in our pain and you know better than I do what the myopoid receptors are doing. So despite all that, you know, what can we do to get those natural endorphins shooting up, right? Which we know exercise can do some heavy lifting with. Um, but yeah, we start talking about the other stuff. Um, you know, I'm very open-minded and broach uh, things like cryotherapy. I broach acupuncture. Um, I broach massage therapy, if that could be an option. You know, my parents are from the island, so we're all about Tiger Balm and Vicks. So what are liniments and ointments doing <laughs> to help with managing that? Absolutely. Um, so everything external, um, before I start talking about, well, in my world, Tylenol is our best friend, right? Uh, and in a sense of when it comes to osteoarthritis and pain, not everyone, you know, can, can have those beneficial effects. So I'm going to probably double down on NSAID topicals, right? Like the Voltarins out there, if need be. But I, I still want to try to get to the root cause of that pain and see what we can do before we jump to even Tylenol, even though I, it is essentially safer than most options for chronic use. I just love and appreciate that you even uttered the words biopsychosocial model of pain or healthcare, quite frankly. <laughs> it's, it's a common theme. You know, what we've been talking about, there's more than medications. Uh, you know, perhaps how I worded my question, if it was a courtroom, would we get leading, Your Honor? Um, well, well done there, bud. Um, yeah, for sure. Sure. All right. So you're an incredibly well-known pharmacist, all right? And if I need a reference for that, it would be the, the top 50 list from last year, 2022. I believe you were number 39 when I looked it up. Uh, so a lot of folks know you, right? Um, and we th thanks uh, for that list there, of course, from the Toddcaster at the Pharmacy Podcast Network and his team. Uh, but you're on the list, but what does the world not know about you? Well, what do we need to know? I mean, I guess there's, I'm a man of mystery, Mark. Can't lie. I can't, I can't give you them all. The <laughs> but I, uh, I mean, I think people know I enjoy traveling, but I, I love to play the cello. 
Um, it's one of my passions that my mom gifted me when I turned 30 five years ago as a housewarming gift. So I played the bass violin throughout middle school and up to high school and then took a break in college. And uh, believe it or not, I only picked up the cello essentially as I started geriatrics. So I had it a little bit before, but I didn't really play it. But now I use really the cello as a part of my me time self-care. So I, I do to pick up that bow and, and, and try to play it at least every day for an hour. So that's something I try to do at night. So that's my wind down period. Um, and I actually try to pray when I play the cello. So it's like a meditative uh, type of dual approach for me of just having some self-care and silence. So it's that is awesome. And I certainly didn't know that. Good golly. Most folks, when you're talking about wind down, it ends up being wind down, right? Um, that's, <laughs> we're all interesting folks. It's amazing to learn these things. So, all right. So what are two more uh, big picture things here? And I ask every pain podcast this, how do you define pain? Yeah, pain, uh, you know, pain is just this uncomfortable stimuli and it could be emotional it could be physical um you know like we said biopsychosocial but really it's this kind of imbalance i would say of your of your steady state of peace you know and if and mm -hmm. it, yeah I, I think pain could be a number of ways like bereavement grieving is a form of pain right you weren't physically yeah. touched but there's an emotional aspect there's a spiritual pain so you know, it's it's quite multifaceted, but I'd say, yeah, disruption to your to your steady state of peace is what I would call it. It's a big picture way of looking at it. it it's um, you know, one one of my favorite baseball players growing up was Frank Thomas. He was known as the Big Hurt. Mm -hmm. I often think maybe we can just call it the Big Hurt, whatever type of pain <laughs> on for anybody. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right. So the the usual follow up for everybody on the pain pod. What's your favorite pain medication? And might as well say why. Um, uh, I'm a spontaneous person. So if I were to choose a medicine off of spontaneity, I'm going to choose methadone. Um, and it's, yeah, it's because you don't know what you're going to get when you use it. I, I clearly, I don't think it's a great <laughs> drug for pain, but Hey, it could work for 20 hours or 120. Who knows? Uh, so I think with the pharmacogenomics aspect of it and, Kind of the way it can also help people that are on, you know, you know, substance abuse. It's it's interesting that it has that effect. So, you know, I'm gonna say methadone to make things spicy. Amazing choice. That that's uh. Whenever I'm talking about methadone, I always quote Dickens. Uh, best of times, worst of times. <laughs> but boy, is there a I lot for a healthcare team to do, right? Uh, yeah, for uh, sure, for sure. All righty, so uh. Get out the magic uh, eight ball here, or crystal ball, I guess, actually. Uh, what do you see for the future of geriatric care, particularly pain management, uh, but of course, geriatrics too? Mm. I'm excited for the future of pain management. I, I think we are getting away from poo-pooing other approaches to pain. So, you know, you got things like, you know, Iceman breathing with Wilhoff breathing, you know, cryotherapy, <laughs> You've got Reiki healing. You've got all these different alternatives out there. I mean, we've, for the first time ever, officially approved a virtual reality headset to manage chronic lower back pain. And, and so that's FDA approved. And in, what, mm -hmm. eight weeks of using it, they've shown 
um, reduction in pain severity and reduction of the need for opioids and non-opioid agents. So I would have never thought we'd be at a time where I could prescribe a headset, probably a PA, probably expensive, I don't know, but <laughs> it exists and the FDA right, right. approved it. And it's really just based on using cognitive behavioral therapy. Absolutely. So to me, I'm excited because you know, we have newer modalities with the technology advent and, you know, of course, AI doing what it does. Uh, of course, my concerns are accessibility and scalability for those who don't have that or even know that it even exists. You know, I, I think medicine started to get a little bit more malleable. And that's why we're seeing more people take that fold. But in terms of geriatric care, I think deep prescribing simply has to be the standard of care for these care facilities. And I mean that not flippantly, but literally as there needs to be a model or standard of care where that is the mindset. And so when you finally inculcate some type of cultural shift to make that standard, it, it's going to create better quality care. And that's what I aim to do with the deep prescribing accelerator and in the aging industry as a whole. So that's where I see the prescribing being that linchpin for pharmacists to really integrate into non-traditional roles and make a name for themselves. Love it. It's it's the, not the future, not uh, holding all medications, but certainly having pharmacists involved and and the entire healthcare professional team. You know, I might have steps all around my house now, but turns out they can get wet and I can fall there too. So we're going to need folks like the lawn there, keeping me safe, keeping you safe, keeping everybody safe, right? Uh, it, it's big picture here. Really appreciate uh, the conversation here, Delon, for Pain Pod Nation. Uh, you know, hopefully this uh, got people thinking about what more we can do to help our older population, our older patients in the in the big picture. Uh, I definitely encourage uh, everybody to check out uh, the 2023 AGS Beers Criteria updates uh, further. Uh, perhaps we'll deal, do a deeper dive in another episode here in the Pain Pod. Uh, but I really want to thank Delon here for for your time. It's our most valuable asset ever. Uh, and of course, your expertise and uh, guidance and recommendations for everyone listening here today, too. Thank you very much, bud. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me, Mark. Absolutely. And uh, Pain Pod Nation, hey, join us for our next episode. We're probably going to dive deeper into uh, the AGS Beers Criteria update. Or who knows, maybe we'll go to infinity and beyond on another topic, right? Regardless, though, join us next time on the Pain Pod. If you'd like to join Mark on the Pain Pod, send us an email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. And make sure to share the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. Thanks for listening.